0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from
0: the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. I'm Joya Sonnenfeld, a third-year student at the Yale Law School and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm very excited to welcome back to Yale a Don Rottenberg, a 2008 graduate of the Yale Law School and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Don is an environmental litigator with the Super Law Group, a Brooklyn-based firm committed to public interest environmental law. Um, First question I have for you uh, is most people, when they think about law jobs, think in three buckets, uh, nonprofit, government, and private. Can you talk a little bit about where uh, your firm fits into that? or whether it doesn't.
1: <laughs> no, sure, yeah. We, we really do fit into the private bucket. I mean, we are a private law firm. We're, we're just a law firm. We're lawyers. Um, 100% of our clients pretty much are environmental groups. So we do a lot of work, especially for smaller environmental groups that don't have their own in-house counsel or groups that have their own in-house counsel, but they're busy, they're stretched. Uh, there's a specific project that's just outside of their area of expertise. We're really water pollution specialists. It's me and my partner Reed, Reed Super, which is how we get the name. We get it honestly. Um, and two associates, Alice Baker, Nick Tappert, and the four of us do a little bit of parkland protection work and other things. But overwhelmingly, we work for groups like the Riverkeeper or the Waterkeeper Alliance or the Sierra Club, representing their interests in court and representing the local communities that oftentimes just don't have their own attorney.
0: So how is that model different from an organization like Earth Justice, which is a public interest um law firm or referred to as a public interest law firm?
1: I think it's basically the same model, just on a much smaller scale.
0: All right. And what would you say is the best part of your job? What makes you really excited Hmm. uh, to do the work that you're doing?
1: Tough one. There's a lot of good points. The Probably the best part is actually working, because we're not earth justice in some ways, we work on a really small scale sometimes. So we work on an extremely large national 10-year horizon rulemaking scale where we challenge federal regulations and try to get better environmental laws. But we also work on really tiny cases that involve one community and one river and one polluter. And we can, inside of a year or two years, um, really see a change in the environment or a change in the pollution control practices at a scrapyard or a concrete plant. And that is deeply satisfying. I mean, I live in Brooklyn, and I do a lot of my cases around the Gowanus Canal and Newtown Creek, and I take my kids down there to walk on the weekends, and it's wonderful to walk past a place and say, you see that wall? You see how it's much cleaner now than it used to be? Like, we did that together, which uh, involved some degree of cooperation.
0: Did you always know you wanted to be an environmental lawyer?
1: (laughs) No. No, not at all. Um, I I, uh, stumbled into this through love, basically, I really, really wanted to do something that would contribute to a better understanding of how we measure and manage the environment and how we think about our impact on the environment and incorporate that into how we produce, how we consume, how we organize industrial systems. And then along the way, I uh, fell in love with a woman, followed her around from one school to another, and pretty much ended up being a lawyer because I hadn't taken the proper technical training to actually go do the engineering and the uh, sort of other hard sciences that are necessary to do the kind of work I'd originally thought of. And then I discovered that, A, law schools will take me, even though the, you know, hard sciences guys won't, and they have law schools everywhere my future wife is going. It just worked out perfectly.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that training that you did end up getting. So as we already mentioned, um... You have a JD from Yale Law School and also a master's from the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Um, what do you think is uh, the the study or the um, experience that you had during your time at Yale that um, has most prepared you for the work that you're doing today? What what things do you think uh, were the most important experiences that you pursued?
1: Well, the answer is a little sad. Hands down, as an environmental lawyer who's trying to clean up uh, water pollution problems the number one and most important thing I do is administrative law. And so that is, you know, the law of agencies, the law of how you interact with large bureaucracies and how they make rules and then how they do things like issuing permits, which are profoundly important and are how most Americans actually interact with the legal system. And the reason I say it's unfortunate is because administrative law involves a lot of procedure and a lot of discussion about the process of how we make rules when all we really kind of want to be doing is fixing these problems. Still, there's no getting away from it. Uh, The quality of your writing and your ability to understand administrative law are sort of the two hallmarks of what we do.
0: Are there any classes um, or experiences that you wish that you had pursued while you were at Yale, either uh, in the law school or at the forestry school?
1: There are dozens. I did everything I could get my hands on. I took stats. I took organic pollutants in the environment with Shimmy Anisfeld. I took... Energy systems analysis, and and uh, I tried to take a GIS course and couldn't quite squeeze it in. Everything has turned out to be useful in one form or another because I work at this intersection of law and policy for very small environmental groups who don't have their own experts. So a lot of the times I'm working on cases where I really wish I had an engineer. I really wish I had a hydrologist or a geologist to help me. But I have to piece through the record as well as I can until we can afford to hire one of those people. If I could go back now and retool a little bit, I would spend more time doing GIS and uh, probably a little bit less time doing the statistical analysis. But the number of hard skills that turn up useful in an environmental practice, is there's no limit to it. There's absolutely no limit to it. I always wish I could do more hard skills.
0: In addition to the hard skills that you were just mentioning, we previously talked about how there are actually areas of the law that you didn't anticipate would touch on your environmental practice, such as bankruptcy. Um, Could you talk a little bit about why you think bankruptcy law is something that aspiring environmental lawyers should take some time to learn about?
1: Sure. And it's not just bankruptcy. It's uh, you name it. Um, Everything that's open to you in law school is, if it's fun, if it's fascinating, just do it. And there will be a way it feeds in later. But you know, if you're dealing with environmental problems, uh, particularly pollution control problems, then you're usually dealing with legacy pollution at some level. There's some contamination that's happened in the past, somebody is responsible for it, and the question of who's gonna end up cleaning it up has a lot to do with bankruptcy law. People who, uh, businesses that go out of business and into bankruptcy are actually shielded from their environmental liabilities and if they weren't tagged with those responsibilities before they went into bankruptcy. So they emerge clean and then it's someone else's problem it's a remarkably difficult problem to solve. We've actually been working, our firm has been working with community groups upstate New York uh, at the sites, at the communities around several old coal-fired power plants where there are really serious concerns about how viable are these power plants and how bad are their historic coal ash contamination problems. In one case, uh, one of the plants actually did go into bankruptcy, emerged the other side, and the corporate parent who had caused most of this problem was gone. And now we have a community and a new set of owners who aren't immediately responsible for the old problem and are in some way left holding the bag.
0: Great. And you said this bankruptcy was one of many. Um, are there any others oh, that gosh. come to mind? That Absolutely. So you know,
1: the UCC comes up. I mean, I am currently looking. One of the nice things about being at a small firm is the ability to sort of think outside the box and and talk to other environmental lawyers and use tools from Administrative rulemaking, you know litigation, judicial review of agency action, all the way over to the threat of class action lawsuits. So uh, that might involve, say breach of contract or uh, claims under the uniform commercial code. There's a number of there's any number of practice areas that I never thought would be important tax. Tax implications of um, pollution liabilities can be significant. We recently had a settlement with a polluter who does a lot of government contracting. And I hadn't thought about the government contracting implications of settlements because sometimes we, almost always, we require polluters to accept liability for what they've done. But if you accept liability for what you've done and what you've done is pollution, then that often bars you from future government contracting. So there, there, is, there are a whole lot of different substantive areas of law that suddenly start affecting my ability to reach a viable settlement with somebody that might get better environmental protection or might really get their backup and for no good reason stop us from reaching an outcome that, you know, gets you a much cleaner river.
0: Going back to your time at Yale, can you think of um, any one person or um, group of people that had the greatest influence on how you practice law today? A classmate there or a are, professor? There
1: are a couple. There are definitely a couple. Jerry Mishaw, who taught administrative law?
0: Still teaching it this semester.
1: It's wonderful, and he, um, you know, he, he presents the material very thoroughly. But he also, every once in a while, you get this, you get this glimpse of the passion and the horrible cruelty that administrative law can cause in people's lives when it's misapplied. You know, stories from the civil rights era in the South, working on people's benefits applications, working on. Um, on you name it, on on a lot of the different projects he did when he was doing basically southern what what now the Southern Poverty Law Center does, those, there are places where the government bureaucracy can be absolutely brutalizing to people's lives, and that that hadn't come across to me in a in a meaningful way until I took his class, and it's a lesson that's stayed with me until now. Dan Esty, at the who uh, is just an amazing scholar of environmental law, and. I mean, I can, I can just keep going. Brad Gentry at the forestry school and Shimmy Anisfeld, who teaches organic pollutants. I use his material and I use what he taught me probably on a daily basis.
0: Well, it's, it's good to hear that uh, these degrees that many of us are pursuing right now do actually pay off in, in work that we'd like to be doing like what you're doing today. Um, just on a, a closing note, uh, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you see the environmental law field a little bit more broadly. Um, what would you tell lawyers that are or law students that are coming into this field uh now? What what big environmental issues do you think that we're really making progress on? And which ones do you think uh a lot more effort and a lot more people need to be thinking about um because we're not there yet?
1: Wow. Or there any are subset? a lot of issues that we're not making enough progress on, and it's really hard to Sometimes it's hard to pull back because you know. So, for example, I'm sitting in New York City, and I currently have open lawsuits against, say, ten uh, polluters on the on the creeks near and, and rivers near my house. Um, I'm part of a legal team suing twelve municipalities just outside the border from New York City because they haven't maintained their sewer infrastructure for fifty years, and so every time it rains, they flood the Long Island Sound with raw sewage. Um, and so, in that sense, it doesn't look to me from the normal day-to-day view, like we're making a lot of progress. There's literally still poop floating in my water. On the flip side, you know, you take that 50,000-foot perspective, the air is cleaner. Water is objectively cleaner today in most major water bodies uh, than it was in the 1970s, even though one-third of water bodies today don't meet water quality standards, and even though that number is now trending upwards again. the The water bodies that don't meet standards are a lot closer. A lot of them are a lot closer to meeting standards than they were, even though there are a lot of new ones that don't. So it's really hard to say that we haven't made progress in those areas. But I can, I can tell you that at the ground level, there are a lot of challenges that have slipped through the cracks. There are a lot of problems that should have been solved in the 1970s and 1980s. We've had the tools on the books to handle things like polluters who just don't have permits and don't put in place basic controls. They don't sweep industrial sites. Um, they don't monitor the discharge from their, from their plant even once a year. That's easy stuff. That's cookie-cutter stuff. That's really low-hanging fruit. But I still find myself bringing a lot of lawsuits against scrapyards and marinas and concrete plants that have just never had environmental permits. And the cost of cleaning up for them is really low because there's, they haven't been doing anything so far. The first steps are really cheap and really easy. We could have fixed that 30 years ago. But it flies under the government's radar because although all of these sites together are a massive— contribution to stormwater or other water pollution problems in the United States. Individually, they're just too small for the government to deal with. You only have so many resources. And with congressional and and gubernatorial budget cuts, it becomes really problematic and it leaves a gap for citizens. And that's where I think we need today's students to step in and fill in. There are a lot of places, at least in the public interest environmental law field, um, for use of conventional tools under the Clean Water Act, under the Clean Air Act, citizen suits, to fix problems that could have been handled a long time ago if government were given the enforcement resources it needs.
0: All right. On that note, thank you so much for joining us today in the studio, and um, we really are glad to have you back at Yale.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.